Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Nick Johnson, international best-selling author, Ironman Top 1% World Athlete, and Executive Mental Health Advocate. Nick is the co-founder and MD of EGN Singapore, one of Asia's premier networking organizations. He built a caring community that provides hundreds of executives a safe haven to share their challenges, receive support, and learn from each other. Nick Johnson is passionate about raising awareness of mental health and combating loneliness in the modern business world. His recently published book, Executive Loneliness, The Five Pathways to Overcoming Isolation, Stress, Anxiety, and Depression in the Modern Business World, provides practical strategies for overcoming isolation and building connections in the workplace. Good morning, Nick, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Thank you so much, Mary. I say good morning, but it's the evening for you since you are in Singapore and I am in the States. There we go. Yes, coming to the end of a day here. That's right. And I have just begun. Fantastic. <laughs> well, Nick, let's get right into it. I was wondering if you could tell us about the first job you ever had. Yes, absolutely. The The first job I ever had, I was actually only 14 years of age and it was at the, through my father's work in the construction site. So you could say like a summer job. That was the first part-time job. And what was that like working with your father? Uh, he wasn't on my particular site, but he was sort of the boss, a distant boss. Uh, so I I can remember that, of course, I, I had to feel that I had to do a good job. It would be reported back, <laughs> not only to my boss, but perhaps to my father as well. So it was, it, it was a bit weird, but uh, I really appreciate getting a taste for the, the work at the age of 14. When you think back to your 14-year-old self, what was, what was it like working in that environment, in the construction environment, and, and working for that boss? Yeah, so I can remember, you know, that he was also cautious, I think, because his boss was my father then. So I think he, it must have been a tough situation for him to deal with a, with a child, you know, at that time. And uh, he, he constantly have to think about what assignments to give me because you're 14 years of age. You're at the construction site. It can be dangerous jobs and so on, right? And uh, for me, mainly, it meant that I was, uh, you know, supporting, uh, giving people the tools they needed and cleaning and taking care and so on. But uh, I can remember thinking to myself that maybe one day I want to educate myself and, and not work in a construction site always. Yeah, you know, it's always so interesting to think about those first jobs that we have. And and for some people, you know, working as instruction, they they realize this is what I want to do. I'm ready to be done with school in a few years so that I can do things with my hands. And many other people, they go through those experience or working for fast food or retail. And they say, I absolutely want to go on and do something else. Yes, absolutely. I think it's good for someone uh, who is young to test different opportunities because you then get a flavor and a taste for it. And I can remember also my father said that, you know, if I go and educate myself later on, which I did, uh, then it's something to fall back to, you know, if, if yeah. one day uh, the career you're in is is perhaps uh, uh, disrupted, then at least you have the construction industry. And I actually came back to it once later on as well, working as a construction painter. So it's there in the background if I need it. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes we think those first jobs have no relationship to where we are professionally, but we are this continuum and everything that we learn, we're compound of all these different experiences that we have and and we fall back to those early relationships what we did well what we didn't do well and different management styles that inform the kind of manager or leaders that we've come today yeah absolutely i completely agree with you you went through and got your education what did you what did you do in college so I actually moved to Australia uh, because my English wasn't so good. So I needed to work on that one. So I looked at the US, UK and Australia and Australia sounded nice coming from cold Sweden. I, I wanted to get a bit of warmer climate. So that's where I went. And I actually went there for three months of uh, English course, but I didn't leave until five years later. So I did a few degrees as well. I studied communication, marketing, advertising and then business as well. And so that's where you have spent much of your professional career in the in the business world in executive positions? 
Yeah, so um, I graduated in Australia then from 2004, so it's coming up to 20 years now in Southeast Asia. So after finishing my studies in Australia, I felt that it was quite far away from Europe. I was worried I will be isolated there. And therefore, you know, I looked at the map, what is halfway? Well, it's Southeast Asia. So since then, I lived in Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam, Singapore, and basically running businesses uh, there and also working my way up the career ladder in various executive jobs. So when you think about all the different experiences that you have had and the people that you have worked with and for, what strikes you as the best experience and what was it that was so good about it for you? Well, I think, um, you know, the the best experience has been to be with a lot of highly career-driven people, people who really have the drive because in order to become perhaps, uh, you know, a regional director and based in Singapore, uh, working for one of the big multinationals, they would have proved themselves first at home ground, then they landed an expatriate position. So it would be some very, very hardworking people, people who, who therefore, you know, aspire to climb up to become perhaps the CEO of the companies. Uh, because if you want to be the CEO of a big company these days, they want you to have worked in various regions around the world and have that global understanding. And that's not only to understand the business, but also the culture and the different environments you're working in. So I think that's been interesting to really see, you know, a lot of mentors there for a lot of people I can look up to who have inspired me along the journey. I cannot pinpoint one exactly, but uh, there's many of them that's been there for me. It is so lovely to to work with other people who have similar goals and to see how they're doing it. You know, when we're around people who are working really hard, it inspires us to work hard. When we are around people who have these 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 big goals that we think, well, how is this going to be accomplished, right? It seems if you want to get to the CEO of a big multinational company, how, how does that happen? Well, as you said, it happens bit by bit and, and working and seeing a variety of people and the way in which they are trying to achieve their career. And that can be very instructive for us as, okay, well, how is that going to work for me specifically? Yes, absolutely. And you can ask them, what's the secret to your success? And many people would be happy to share it over coffee. And in fact, I I just asked that question to one gentleman last week uh, who uh, was one of the top people in Shell. Then he was the CEO of Malaysia Airlines, turning them around when they were almost bankrupt. And he said, well, my father said early on in my life that if I wanted to be successful in a job, Look at the, the, the CEO or the boss of that company, or even if it was in school, look at the top student of your class uh, and copy what they are doing and double down on it. <laughs> if you double down on what they're doing, then you're going to basically reach. Uh, reach, And that's what he did. And, and he is one of the most successful business uh, uh, CEOs and entrepreneurs from Malaysia these days. I think that's such great advice. And so I worked with college students for ever so long. And many times college students don't know what to major in or what they want to do. And my advice has always been find somebody who's doing what you want to do. Talk to them. Find out what their path is. And it doesn't mean that you have to do exactly what their path is, but it kind of gives you a roadmap of, oh, they didn't just land in this this position. They didn't just achieve this. They got it through all this hard work and going in, not a straight path, because success is never a straight path, but it's the ups and downs and trying a variety of things that help you find that road for yourself. But sometimes we have no idea how to get there. And so asking people, what was your path to success? What is your secret? What works for you can help us figure out what works for us. Absolutely. And as mentioned, most of them are very, very happy to share it. It's not yes. a big secret, right? That's uh, right. I think that is, that's a really good point because sometimes we can be intimidated by people that we um, aspire to, the kinds of jobs that they have. And But a lot of times people want to share, they want to mentor, they want to, they want other people, good leaders want other people to be good leaders and successful people want other people to be successful and to try to help to make as you, you know, make others better by sharing what it is that um, has worked for us. Yes. So conversely, when you think about the different positions that you've had and the different situations that you've been in, can you tell us about a time that you encountered a, a conflict at work and how you dealt with it? And, and then gen- in general, how do you deal with conflicts now when I work conflicts? Yeah, if I'm looking back, uh, let's say around 10 years ago, I wasn't so good at dealing with it. And I can remember also the 
my leaders who I had in the organizations also didn't really know how to deal with it. And especially in senior positions working in uh, other countries, I can remember, especially in Indonesia, uh, where one of my leaders and my direct report basically told me to be very careful what I said and what I shared with the teams because it could create jealousy. And that meant everything from, you know, the, the vehicle we were driving to office or if you bought a new mobile phone, you know, try not to show it because people maybe become jealous and gossip. And, and But it created also this kind of culture where you really, really stay to yourself. You didn't really integrate with the teams. And then when conflict happens, it's very, very difficult. Then you don't have that sort of lunch break, coffee break kind of relationships with the teams. So I think that was a very, very poor advice from my, my leader at the time, really to keep separate and, and don't integrate with the team. Uh, these days, do, uh, though, I do uh, things completely different. And uh, I guess it comes with age and experience. And I, I, I know that, you know, we lead through people and it's, it's really by being closer to people. And it doesn't matter if they speak different languages and so on. We just have to come to their level and even learn the language or at least find a middle path and, and become a bit closer to them. I like the way that you've said that, find the language of the other person. Marshall Rosenberg, who is the father of nonviolent communication, he says that everything that we say, we're either um, building bridges, coming closer to one another, or we're distancing ourselves. And I think that you're right. I mean, you've had all these different multicultural experiences. And at the end of the day, there are people, right? We're trying to make human connections with other humans. And and whether that's a language barrier, a cultural barrier, experience barrier, whatever it might be, it's still another person that we are trying to connect with. And I do believe that the quality of our life has to do with the quality of our relationships and whether that's in business or in personal life. And so that advice of being tiptoeing around other adults because they might become jealous, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. is, I agree, bad advice. It it might be realistic at this culture at in this office this is what has happened but to say that's what we need to do in the future i would say rather well let's go ahead and remedy that and it might be it might take a long time but let's start changing the ship so that that is no longer the culture here yes absolutely and that is the path and and really being uh, closer to the people and that means in the office and outside office and especially today when we have this virtual world and the the business I'm running these days we have 37 staff all working remotely we haven't had an office for a few years and it is only through trust and having good relationships and uh, and giving each other space that we actually can uh, function and operate Uh, otherwise it wouldn't work yeah absolutely So you have written this wonderful book called Executive Loneliness, Five Pathways to Overcoming Isolation, Stress, Anxiety, and Depression in the Modern Business World. What a wonderful gift to talk about loneliness and in this particular kind of loneliness, executive loneliness. Will you tell us a little bit about your book? Yes, absolutely, Mary. And uh, the reason for writing about executives here is uh, I'm sure many of listeners have heard that it's lonely at the top. And that's what I want to look into. And, and what I'm referring to here, it can be CEOs, but also entrepreneurs, solo entrepreneurs, and so on, running perhaps their own business and being there for the only one. Um, but as I looked into the topic, I realized that it's not only at the top, it can be anywhere in the organization. So therefore, I thought, you know, executive loneliness, which means that it can be lonely anywhere in, in, in a workplace, if you're isolated and you don't have open conversation, uh, conversations and so on. And just to add also the reason for writing the book is that I felt isolated in my w- workplace, but for many years I didn't speak about it. I thought this was the norm as I went through my career. And later on, though, uh, once I left the corporate world and I started to look into it by interviewing senior executives and surveying them, I realized that I wasn't alone. It's many other executives who find that they cannot speak up in the company. They worried perhaps that they will not get the next promotion, they will not get a salary increase. And if they are a leader, they f- believe that and think that they should have the answers. So is that one of the reasons behind the book is to chip away at that the stigma of talking about loneliness so that it will become more normalized? Absolutely. And we see that, you know, if you look at rock stars and sports stars, they have for years been holding up the hand or raising a, a flag, you know, when they are burnt out, they feel stressed. 
but in the business world, no one really does that. It's, they're still trying to hide, hide what I call in the book behind a smiling depression and covering it up. And it's almost like they live a double life. If you go and look at a social media profile, everything is beautiful and it's well looked after. But what's behind the scene might be someone who's close to burnout. It can be perhaps also involving addictions, anything from shopping to gambling, sex or alcohol or any form of addiction is very common uh, to, to then be able to deal with it, uh, this isolation. And instead of then opening up and talking about it, and that is an issue. And indeed, the purpose of the book is to really create a conversation around this, normalize the conversation and break the stigma. A lot of times... Uh, we have organizations and they've got mental health initiatives and we want our colleagues to deal seriously with their mental health. And yet we don't see it modeled from the top. And we know it's not what the culture says, but it's what they do, what they actually prize. And so if leaders will actually take on the mental and model that they're human persons too, they have good days, they have bad days, they go through real human struggles, then that that gives people permission to recognize, hey, I'm having a hard time, or I need this resource, or I need someone to talk to. And so instead of, uh, maybe it, it sounds counterintuitive, but you know, the leader as having it all together, because they're at the top, that means they have it all, is actually hurts the organization because it's false. Yes, absolutely. And that was another reason for uh, doing the book as well. It was because when I interviewed senior executives, that forced them to think about this. They had to fill in a survey. And the last question was, can I meet you over a coffee to also have a, a more depth interview? And some people who ticked that box, actually, when I first had a conversation with them, they might not have shared much. But there was some who it really opened their mind. There was one particular lady uh, who uh, has been a managing director, a very successful managing director of an international bank. So a lady then who has ha built her career in a man's world, basically. She was surrounded by men in the bank industry. Uh, and she had everything. It looked like on the outside, she had all the careers and, and, and the money and the fame that, that the outside world would applaud her for. But once I spoke with her, uh, she revealed to me that she was very lonely. And she even admitted to me during our second meeting that it had gone as far that she even had rehearsed her own suicide twice. So that mm -hmm. means that there's someone here who's completely closed and she fell in tears when she admitted that to me during this time. I mean, that's just so real. When we think about being at work, and in particular, I think people who are, are ascending and going up the ladder, we think about what it means to be professional, right? And our private life and our professional life. And there is this art to what is appropriate to share, which has a lot to do with the organization you're in and your own personality and what is going on. But there's also these power differentials. And we have to be aware of that. And I think that probably lends a lot to this this loneliness, this, you know, at first you're with your peers and then you get promoted and then you get promoted and then you get promoted. And those power differentials are real. And those people who are in a different power structure than you are to call them your, your buddies is to not really understand what's going on at work. What kind of advice would you give somebody who thinks, well, I can't talk to anybody at work because they work for me and it's just really not appropriate. Yeah. So that's a great question, Mary. And, uh, I'm a big believer of that we all need to have mentors, coaches, sponsors, and all uh, this inside organization is great to have a mentor, someone who can look after you and so on. But most of this need to be external. It need to be external. It need to be confidential. We need to feel that we can have this as our safe space. I myself these days have coaches outside the workplace. I have some mentors I can check in with on advice and I have a sponsor because I had a a mental health crisis myself a couple of years ago and after that I, I was in recovery and there I got a sponsor and and that really helps me so I believe that we need to be quite proactive and create these safe spaces and I'm also a believer of masterminds and peer groups and that's what I do for a living now arranging confidential peer groups where senior executives are paired with uh, like-minded where they can discuss the challenges and solve them before they become major issues. Yes, I absolutely love that, being proactive. Many of us, of course, wait until we have hit rock bottom, until there's just, that's it. I mean, there's there's no place to go. And so we have to get serious about our mental and physical health. How much better to be proactive? How much better to recognize 
that actually, I don't think it matters where you are. Uh, if you're just starting out, which has its own stressors, as you rise up to the top, we all need to have that support to talk through the issues, to get advice, to when something starts to go wrong, to head it off before it gets into a full, full-blown issue. Yes, I completely agree. We can practice this from young age. And we have, I think, as parents, a responsibility to also train our children in this. I have a son who's 14 years of age. And uh, um, I've been trying to have as honest conversations I can with him. I've been sharing about my failures. I've been sharing about my feelings and so on. And I've asked him about his challenges. And when he hit something that is very, very painful for him, there's been incidents at school uh, involving some things that, you know, he didn't feel 100% comfortable to disclose to me. I managed to find a coach uh, who specialized in teenagers and they had a conversation. Once there was some trust, they had, he decided to open up and share some things, which was very, very important for us to find out. We managed to therefore uncover something before it went very bad and he changed uh, school and so on and he he was empowered to make his own decisions in which school he wanted to go to and he's he now feel a lot of trust for me and his mom and he he's openly sharing when some situations are popping up for him which is difficult and we together try to find a solution and he therefore has his own safe space which is confidential where he i'm not a part of Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that worked out for your son. And what wonderful skills to set him up with now. And I think with developing resiliency, which I know is something that you're interested in talking about resiliency, resiliency, you don't just get it. It is something that you get because you practice and you continue to practice every time something hard comes up, the little to the big. And and I think I'm very interested in habits and, and, and how we form good habits, virtuous habits. How do we become courageous by doing cur- courageous things, right? And and it's a, a lifetime of practicing so that when the big thing comes, but how do we develop this resiliency in the face of the stressors and the difficulties of life? Because life is difficult. It's also wonderful, but it certainly is difficult. And we know that. We already know it's going to be difficult. So why not and build that in how we're going to deal with the difficulty, th- the difficult things we've already encountered, we're encountering or will encounter in the future. So tell us a little bit about what you think about developing resiliency and ways in which to do that. Yeah, I think uh, it links it back to habits, actually. I think uh, having, you know, some good foundation habits is very, very important and having multiple and i think we need to have them when it comes to nutrition and food we need to have them in regards to sleep and rest we need to have them in regards to exercise and we need to find something we love uh, to do uh, especially when it comes to exercise forcing ourselves to do something we don't like we shouldn't do if it's if we love play badminton great if we love bowling or walking then do that but do it i believe we should move every day we need to get outdoors and so find something where we can get out in the nature, get some fresh air and sun, and also to socialize and connect with other people. And uh, that those connections we can do over sport and exercise and so on. So I uh, have completely built my life around this these days. And that's at the heart and core of everything. And I block slots uh, every day in my calendar uh, to make sure that that's my time for exercise. And I don't touch that. It's very, very, very rare. I touch my my slots on that. Be right before here, for example, I was with a running group here and uh, it's for all skills and everything from new runners to uh, very serious runners, but we have different groups, but it's in the calendar and we meet. And therefore, even if I don't feel like it, I still go there. I can still go for a walk, even if I'm not feeling great or slow jog, but I'm very disciplined on that. So having these good habits, I think is very important. What happened to me a few years ago was um, when some life incidents happened in my life, I went through a divorce. I lost a job and with that then uh, I also lost my good habits for a while and I fell off but that was because I didn't have open honest conversations these days also with all my good habits now the people who are there know me very well and I know them so uh, I'm proactive as we said before and very honest about my how I feel with people so it shouldn't go as bad as what happened once in my life. 
You talk about smiling depression. For especially for senior executives with that double life, almost like putting on the facade, you know, you see the social media looking great, but then behind there it's it's not all what you see. I understand that. I certainly suffer from that as well. And I want to be authentic. I want to be open. I find it very difficult. And I am interested in in the, in the habits of, you know, the virtuous habits of moderation and courage and justice and and wisdom and all of those virtues. And I do find that very challenging to be open. So I think that our, our bad habits are allow, allowed to grow because of darkness, right? It's, it's not out in the open. They're hiding. So how have you, what worked for you to move from hiding to embracing this authentic way of being open and honest and open and honest, of course, in an appropriate way, given the circumstance. Because at work, I don't think that people should be spilling their guts necessarily. It is a work environment. So how do you how do you find that? And, and how have you found that within yourself to be able to make that change? Yeah, so back in 2018, when I had my episodes, when I went through depression, anxiety, and also uh, alcohol addiction for a while, and I managed to break that. And uh, I was then again, looking up to the people who had gone through it before and learned from them. And uh, and they told me, you know, that uh, just surrender to to it. And in that case, it meant I surrendered to the alcohol and I stopped it. I haven't had a drink now since uh, May 2018. And that was one part of it. And I constantly came back to those meetings and listened to other people who've gone through it before. And these days, for the last five years now, I'm a volunteer helping others who have issues with alcohol but also burnout and stress and uh, everything else in the workplace and giving so that's my way of giving back and helping others and that also then makes me grateful for what i have today and uh, and that's one way for me to keeping well and i learned very early on in recovery that you have to give it give it back to keep it and that means that it's a gift we get uh, when we are recovering people helped us and we therefore need to help others and once we stop that, the, the cycle sort of stops and then we might fall back into bad habits again. So that's a daily reprieve. And uh, I constantly join these meetings and there's so many uh, groups and masterminds and men's group, uh, women associations and so on, where we can join. And the, if anyone has any addiction problems, all the 12 step programs are absolutely fabulous. I really like that, this idea that we don't just overcome and then we're done. It is a process, right? If we let ourselves go, we it's hubris, right? You know, we, we, when we lack humility and thinking, oh, I'm never going to do that again. And we can slowly find our way back. I think it's like with exercise. You don't exercise for a month, a year, 10 years, and then you're done, right? It's We have these bodies that continually need to be moved. And it's the same thing with stressors. We have stressors, new ones, the things that we didn't know that were going to be around the corner. And we need to be able to have healthy minds and bodies to be able to deal with that, which means having that system in place so that we don't get lazy in our thinking and think that, oh, I don't need anybody else's help. We all need help. Yes, I, I gave a talk last week in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in Malaysia, and I opened by saying I have nothing more to prove. I have only things to improve. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I want to live now. I want to constantly look at myself and constantly learn and have that growing mindset. Uh, and uh, I think if more of us have that, then it, it, our society will be a positive one. Absolutely. I love that so much. I'm going to think a lot about that. I was wondering, as you when you were talking about um, taking time for yourself, exercising and, and other sorts of healthy habits, I can imagine that a lot of executives might say, that sounds wonderful. I don't have the time. So how do you combat that real demand on time for, and, and if you have families as well, you know, family time, and if you have children, the demands of work and being a physical person that needs to take care of themselves. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who says that would be wonderful? I don't have the time. Yeah, I think we have to plan it. I think if we don't plan for it, it will never work out. And I have brought my son to the most 
workouts and so on and even planning holidays around it we when we did a road trip uh, this summer we looked in germany and so we were looking at where we're going to stay and we looked at oh yeah they have a a, a, a swim place there and then we would stop there then we said oh, we can run there so we, we plan everything around it before so it's not uh, just ad hoc it has to be part of it and even the uh, as i mentioned the run squad i went to tonight parents can bring the children if they like and we can do so much things together so i really don't think it is much of an excuse unless you're working 16 hours a day but if you're working eight hours a day or nine or ten i think there's still time in the day to move for 45 minutes or an hour together with our loved ones and and, and whoever that is we should be able to make that happen and i also think if it's an entrepreneur or someone working in a business i say that when I'm sitting in front of the computer, I'm working in the business. When I'm out cycling or swimming or walking, I'm working on the business because that's when I have that CEO mindset and the ideas will clear. Or when I sleep at night, it will pop up the next morning when I'm in exercise mode. So therefore, I think it's just a poor excuse. And I'm sorry to be quite blunt there, but I certainly believe that it's really poor excuses. And if anyone has that, they should get a coach and sort that out, I think. I think that you're right. I just think it's a trick that we we tell ourselves. And of course, that's a fast track to burnout. If you are literally working so much that you're just working and sleeping, that's not sustainable. I mean, every once in a while, we need to put in some time, but that's for a short amount of time. And even then, I absolutely agree. I've, I've done a lot of writing and a lot of times my best ideas are when I'm out walking, I'm out doing something else. And I've been thinking about marinating an idea. And then it comes to me, because I, I'm not sitting in my office, I'm not writing, it, it pops up and maybe I'll stop and make a note to myself on my phone and then I'll continue with what I'm doing. And if you don't pay attention to yourself, it's to your own peril. And it's that preventative healthcare. If you don't do it at the front end and take a little bit of time now, you're going to take a lot of time and it's going to be a lot more painful on the other end. Yeah, and that's, absolutely. that's what I think about conflict resolution. I I'm a workplace mediator, and so I deal with conflicts that have risen. And by the time they get to me, so I'm in the middle of a uh, mediation right now, it's so heartbreaking what has taken place. And I'm so glad that at least I've been called in to try to help these people uh, deal with their situation and restore it so that they can move forward. But how much better would it be if it hadn't come to this, if there had been clear communication, if they had been able to have what you talk about, this trust? And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about working with so many people, everybody's remote, and yet you talk about trust and giving people space. So what are the real world things that you do with your people that brings about a kind of trust with one another? I think the the biggest learning I have from my recovery in this space is that we always make amends and apologize for our own mistakes and we just keep our side of the street clean we don't care what's going on on the other side that's their business and it's not much we can do and uh, and we just have to accept that people are different and they that they might be right or wrong and it doesn't matter we're just trying to keep our side clean and that means that uh, as a starting point uh, and i had to do this in recovery i had to clean the whole past and that meant everything from something I might have said a few years ago to my sister, which I remember that was not nice, to paying back a small little credit card debt that I innocently thought that I could leave, but I couldn't. So I had to go back and make amends and clear that up. So I cleaned my whole baggage of everything from my young age until now, all institutions and people, and then I have to do that on a daily basis. And what I do now before I go to bed every day, I have to do an inventory and think back over the day. Did I say something? Did I send a message? Did I send an email that wasn't quite nice to someone? And before I, I, I go to bed, then I have to make an amend to that person. It can be sending a voice note or sending another email to that person. Saying, Sorry, that didn't come out right. I will call you tomorrow. I hope you can spare me two minutes. So then when we go to bed, we cleaned up that day and we have nothing to worry about. And that's when we have a good sleep as well. Oh, that's beautiful. I absolutely love that. I, I aspire to that, uh, that inventory. I've been thinking a lot about, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good at, I think, in general, my relationships with others. And yet, 
I think the work that I need to do is cleaning up my own mind about others, right? So sometimes we can trick ourselves and saying, well, how I'm how I'm approaching sort of that smiling face, how I'm approaching others, but what's going on inside? And, you know, really living, I really have been trying to embrace this live and let live, as you said, not everybody needs to see the world the way that I do. Not everybody needs to see the quote unquote facts the way that I see that. And not only allowing those differences, but embracing them and really loving diversity of being in the world, because I know that diversity of being in the world is a real good, just like diversity of nature. You know, I see the the scene behind you are all these beautiful trees and not one of those two trees are the same and they're all different colors and different shades of green. And yet it is that diversity that makes it beautiful. And it's the same thing with people if we don't try to control them. Yes, absolutely. So uh, I haven't counted the uh, nationalities, but the 37 staff I have, I guess it's about 15 different nationalities and I have to deal with them all every day, you know, and different languages, ethics, religions, and so on. And by the way, I'm remarried since five years ago and my wife is Muslim. And, you know, if that was the old Nick 10 years ago, it would never have worked even a week because I would drive my own agenda and it will end up in conflict. And these days I'm just trying to do everything right at my side and I, I cannot care and I cannot control too much what is happening on the other side. And therefore it's working even in what would be from the outside a very complicated relationship. This is how you approach the world, right? By by keeping your side of the street clean, by making amends. and so how do you see that with with the with your staff and the people that you work with in building trust and as they build their own relationships with other people with within that that framework how how do you see that that working and what happens when trust is broken how do you approach that Yeah so I think you know if I'm keeping my side of the street clean what normally happens after I made amends they will, uh, you know, come back to me and apologize for what they have done. If I would attack them instead or argue in something, then, you know, that would never happen, right? But if you say sorry first and you make some amends, it's quite likely that the, the other person will also make amends. And uh, I can just say what one of my colleagues said uh, is basically the uh, he has been in so many conflicts in previous organizations that he even think that the current organization, which I'm leading now, is repairing his soul, which has been destroyed by his previous companies, mm -hmm. just by uh, having this mindset of, and, and if I'm jumping in between two colleagues who have conflict, I'm never judging, I'm never trying to play one right or other. I'm just trying to get the facts on the table and, and just being a good listener for them. And sometimes it takes a while for them to recover, uh, but eventually they get there and then they see that at least I didn't take any sides. But I can definitely learn from someone else like you, Mary. I can get better at the, the resolution. Maybe I can come to quicker solutions if I get your help. Sometimes, the, especially when it's not up to us and we're watching other people, it's that patience and just... Sometimes it takes time and being okay with that time and the silence and someone like me, who's a fixer, it's going into this profession. I don't get to fix anybody. The only person I get to try to work on is myself. And then I make a space for other people so that they can move forward. But what you said, and when I was reading your story in your book, one, a couple of phrases came to mind, but one is institutional trauma. When we are mistreated by an institution and then we got, we take that with us if we don't do anything with what happens to us if we're mistreated someplace. We take that to the next place. And then when you talk about that, the, one of the places that you left because you were trying to be proactive because you had all of these feelings that were undealt with and projecting into and the suspicion because of what had happened to you before. I think that's very natural, right? We we are always trying to read the room, and if. And if we didn't read it right one time, we think, okay, now I've got to be hyper vigilant, which then, of course, ends up affecting our life, our job performance, and it can carry on from one institution to the next institution if we don't address it. Yeah, so that's what indeed what happened in my case. Uh, the first two companies I was laid off from was uh, merger acquisitions. And I had to deal with that by myself, finding a new job and so on. And, and 
I didn't at that time ask for help. So I tried to keep all the pressure inside. And then when indeed I was in my third role, then uh, I was just so insecure. I remember the, the probation period, three months. I just, was just thinking, you know, will I pass the probation or not? And because I was so insecure at the workplace, I also pushed away everyone at home. Uh, so that was led me to my divorce and that then resulted in many other things. So it was indeed my downfall. And I had a mentor in the workplace, but of course you don't talk to a mentor in the workplace about the issues because it's internal in the company, like you said. And at that time, I didn't understand that I, the importance of having these safe spaces externally. So I learned this, the painful and the hard way. So I hope that none of the listeners are going through this path. And unfortunately, many, probably some of them are because people get really damaged at work and they don't know what to do. And there isn't really much talk about help for them. Many organizations don't have something like an ombuds or some real place that is confidential, that is impartial, that is off the record for people to actually have those conversations, which when we can't really speak about what's going on, then we don't do great work and it ends up damaging the institution. And of course it comes home, right? It, Cause we're whole people. And so what's happening at work follows us every place we go for good or for ill, which is wonderful news. That means that in our organizations, we can be places for light and hope and showing people a different way, a better way to interact with other humans. Yes, that was nicely said, Mary. I completely agree with you. So one thing that I want to come back to this one more time, when you hit your, your rock bottom in, in 2018, in my work in philosophy, I would have called that a boundary situation, right? The, the situation where it makes it really crystal clear because you also thought you were going to die. And many times boundary situations are those, they don't have to be as dramatic as that. But um, as you also mentioned, the death of a friend, you thought you were going to die. These these can really put into stark relief. What is life about? You know, what, what is my purpose? What is really important to me? Because everything else falls away. And those boundary situations can really help us to rebuild and say, okay, I don't need to pretend for anybody else. This, this is it. My life could go away at any moment. What do I want to make my life about? Do you think this this situation that you had when you did think that you might die and you got your affairs in order, did it help you reframe what you thought your life was about or what you wanted your life to be about? Yes, absolutely. And um, I got what they call in recovery, the gift of desperation, because mm -hmm. it's so painful to change as a human being that many times we only do little changes uh, whatever we feel comfortable that we can stretch a little bit but we don't make radical change that only comes from extreme pain and the the pain that i had then at rock bottom was that pain that was what i needed to change and you know sadly we shouldn't have to fall that deep to have that pain that we think we're gonna die in order to change but sadly that is many times what it is we, we, if we are a smoker, maybe we don't stop until we, we really are on the deathbed and the doctor is telling us that we only have a one year to live. It seems like that's only when the real, real change is coming. Um, these days, though, also, and, and again, I, I was in the training with the successful entrepreneurs last week, and one of the speakers there, he said we should pursue the game of impossible in the workplace. What he meant with that was that if you work with your team and you set goals, they will only agree to a goal which perhaps is 10% bigger and very similar to the goals of last year. Because again, people are scared to change and they just want to stretch a little bit. But he said, if we pursue the game of impossible and we set a goal that is so big that we can not even imagine reaching it, then we have to take a step back and we have to do things completely differently. We have to really think outside the box and repackage it and do things in a completely different way. And that is what I did. So indeed, I pursued the game of impossible and I built together a life, I would say these days, which is beyond my wildest dreams. Everyone could put down goals I could imagine, uh, you know, I would have written down having a Ferrari, having, having this penthouse and all of those things. But I have much more beautiful things now. Uh, I have real connections with people. I live uh, in uh, Phuket, Thailand is my back office. Uh, and I travel Southeast Asia uh, for work. And I have beautiful people around me. And I have health. And, 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 uh, and that is more important than anything else. 
Yeah, that that reframing that the gift of despair or the or the gift of finding that what you thought was important really isn't. Um, right. As Socrates says that when we think we know, we stop looking. This is what success is. I know. So I'm going to pursue this. But what if what you think of success isn't? And if we define success as the, the amount of money that you have, that's just clearly false, right? It's not he who dies with the most toys wins, right? It doesn't work that way. But it is the quality of our relationships, the quality of, of who we are. Who are we as we go into work, as we go into our families, as we go into the community? And as you said, going to bed with a clear conscience and having that not carry into the next day, but starting a new day fresh as I don't have to, I dealt with yesterday. I have this brand new day and I get to decide how I'm going to be and what I'm going to do. And the lovely thing about practicing that is that we get to start the new day with the habits that we acquired the day before and the day before and the day before. And if those are healthy habits we've been working on, we get to start the day in that way. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important also to be aware of the bad habits and break them and work with uh, coaches or other people to get rid of them before they become an addiction. Because what I've seen in my work is that a bad habit can bring with other bad habits. And before you know it, you're in that downward spiral. And we need to break that again by going back to our earlier conversation, by have, being proactive about this, having these safe spaces, both personally and also professionally. So with executives... A lot of times, as, as you've mentioned, they don't speak up out of fear, out of fear of looking weak, out of fear of not being taken as seriously, as authoritatively, of not getting that promotion or whatever it is. What is your advice to an executive to overcome that fear? Yeah, find a, a safe space to discuss it. And it can be a mastermind group. It can be a men's group or a woman leaders group, or it can be a peer group which is what exactly what we do and you have them also these peer groups in the us we have vistage for example for the entrepreneurs and ceos and uh, all these organizations are there and many of them including the one i'm running now you have signed a non-disclosure agreement you have no competitors no colleagues in there and it is set up to really be there for you to be vulnerable in fact the first day you come in to one of our meetings you have to stand up in front of the group and you mention what is the expertise you're bringing into the group and number two what's your biggest work-related challenge right now and it has so big that if you if you then can overcome it it will really really change your whole work life and once you get you know up front there and you lay that out the whole group will help you to try to solve it and come with solutions for you uh, so you should leave the first session feeling inspired. And by doing that, you're practicing what I refer to as the vulnerability muscle. And we need to constantly practice that. Absolutely. And I think that's that's really it, is that you aren't alone. You're only alone if you choose to be, but you can make a different choice. And you can go and find those groups, whatever is feels comfortable. But I think so much of conflict resolution or... Overcoming something like loneliness is about personal empowerment. Finding that little, just has to be a little spark to do something different, do something healthy. And there are so many groups out there, especially if you are battling any kind of addiction, if you are having mental health issues, just about, you know, just about every country, most countries, there are international organizations that exist solely to help you to help you be better tomorrow than you were today, to have a healthier life. Because we need you. We need all of you in your diversity. And we want you to be happy and healthy. But that doesn't happen by accident. It is intentional. Yeah, absolutely. So Nick, my last question for you. When you think about the future of work and you think about your son going off into the workforce, what do you think needs to happen so that people are not only treated with dignity and respect, but encouraged to thrive and flourish? Yeah, I think uh, we, it's a big question. And I think the whole society is set up wrongly on this note. I think, uh, uh, you know, we prioritize career and money and fame too much still, rather than 
what I think is, you know, as I refer to in my book also as the the, the happy pill, which is exercise. I think uh, we need to really, really prioritize getting our exercise. Then we have the also the habit of eating well when we exercise. And then we also tired when we come to bed at night and we'll have a good night's sleep. And I think those f- three things are much more important than work and career. And I think the whole society need to shift here and get people in a more healthy space because if we have the physical health then we will not have so much issues with the mental side and the emotional side and there's so much money if we now want to talk about money for a company to save and for the governments to save by having a healthier and happier people so it is not only the financially responsible thing to do it is the moral thing to do to encourage one another to live the best kind of life and that means recognizing that we have bodies and we need to take care of them and when we take care of our bodies our minds follow as well absolutely well nick thank you so much for being on conflict managed i've had so much fun talking with you today thank you for inviting me mary i very much appreciate it take care thank you nick for being on conflict managed you've certainly given me a lot to think about and really encouraged me to do that daily inventory that i know i should be doing And hopefully that was the push I need to really think about and make amends every day so I can keep my side of the street clean and move about in the world as a force for light, which is I know what we all really want to do to help each other to be better tomorrow than we were today. If you are interested in Nick's book, it is in the link below. I encourage you to reach out. My new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure, is 80 tips of what not to do at work and starts the conversation about what does it really mean to show up as a professional and how do we have healthy work environments. So I encourage you to check that out. You can find that on Amazon and any place else you buy books. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. If there's someone you would like to see as a guest on Conflict Managed, or if you have any questions, please reach out. You can email us at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Come back. We have new episodes every Tuesday. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care. <laughs>